Turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63. A lot of kids today. We're praying for you guys. Isaiah 63 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you're new with us and you're wondering why Isaiah 63, it kind of seems like a random chapter, um, it's because we've been preaching all the way through the book of Isaiah. All 62 chapters we've done. Yes, it's really true. 62 chapters. So we're almost done. We only have, including this sermon, four more sermons to go. Um, and you guys have, have done a great job and, and we've... Um, Learned a lot. This is an amazing, amazing Old Testament prophetic book. Um, and we have an amazing chapter to look at this morning. And this is near the end, obviously. And this, uh, these final chapters are introducing God as conqueror, God as king. And it's going to transition in our chapter to a, uh, a praying church. So it's going to, there's going to be a, a longer prayer that we're going to see and then it's going to, in chapter 64 and 5 and 6, transition to a promising God. Praying church and a promising God. So I'm going to have you uh, remain seated uh, because of the length of this chapter. Well, we'll dig right in as I read it. This is chapter 63 of Isaiah. This is God's holy and perfect word. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments. And stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and and himself fought against them. And then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? And where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people 
to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, for you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary and we've become like those over whom you've never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's zoom out for a second. What is Isaiah all about? As we near the end of Isaiah, what is it really all about? And it's really this this clear message, that God saves sinners, that salvation is from God alone and no one else. No one can save themselves, but only God. There's something interesting happening. If you look at the very last couple of verses of our chapter, where it says, the last verse, verse 19, we've become like those who you've never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. There is an identity crisis happening with Israel. They're receiving the discipline of the Lord, and they're unsure about who they are. Who are we? What have we become? You know, there's a strange principle embedded into our faith that runs counter to mainstream culture today, mainstream thought. Ever since the social revolution of the 1960s, people have been trying to find themselves. You've heard that phrase, I'm going to find myself, by going deeper, where? Into themselves. Finding yourself has given a way to nowadays saying, stay true to yourself, right? Stay, stay true to yourself, which is now the highest moral goal. It's the highest value in our culture. Self-expression, right? Self-expression is the highest goal. But for the Christian, it's different. For the Christian, we find ourselves, we find our true identity not within ourselves, but outside of ourselves, in another. And in fact, the more we discover about this other, the more truth we find out about ourselves. This other is the God of the universe. So who is he? What is he like? And that's the first question we see in verse 1. Who is this? Who is this who comes from Edom? It's when we ask those questions that we begin to see where our worth and our value is, where it comes from, and what purpose we have here on earth. But it's not a road that many people like to take not an enjoyable road for this reason. It forces us to see the evil in the world around us and the evil in our hearts for what it actually is. We have to do an honest assessment of our hearts. And that's what you see going on in this chapter. But if we're willing to go there, to talk about the sin we see in ourselves, that is when we begin to see the real transformation take place. And that's when our identity begins to change from rebel to child, from idolater idolater to worshiper, from sinner to saint. 
And that's where Isaiah has taken us this morning, to see God in all his glory so that we can find our true identity in him. And we see this repeated theme in Isaiah. I don't know if you've noticed. We get this wonderful realization of God's glory, this awesome picture of him bringing justice and judgment to the world. Uh, Moltier is a commentator, and he says, Isaiah is characterized by a wonderful perception of the future. Yet every time we're brought to the point where all seems to be fulfilled, we meet a not yet. Finally, we reach the somber but marvelous verses 1 through 6 of our chapter 63. Surely now, with the overthrow of every foe, the redeeming work is finally done, but no. The remembrancers take their place on the walls to give the Lord no rest until he fulfills all that is promised. So the question the text is asking is, who is this? Who is this God? And there's three major parts of this chapter as it reveals who this God is. Who is this God? And those are the three main points that, that we see that this God is the lion who conquers. Secondly, he's the lamb who loves. And thirdly, he's the Lord who leads. He's the lion who conquers, the lamb who loves, and the Lord who leads. And the goal for us this morning is, is that in knowing that lion who conquers, that lamb who loves, Lord that leads, if we know that, we'll be established in his victory, we'll be grounded in his love, and we'll be led by his sovereign hand as we try to live out. What does this even mean to be a Christian? How do we live this, this faith out? We need to be grounded in those three realities of who God is for us. So first, let's look at the lion, the lion who conquers. Look at verses 1 through 6. The text says this, Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra. Edom, Basra is the capital city of Edom. Edom comes from the tribe of, uh, and group of Esau. And what happened uh, throughout Israel's history is Edom basically became this uh, anti-God nation. They hated God, hated God's people. So Edom really becomes known, the symbol of hatred for God. Evil, pure evil. It stands for everything anti-God. So who is this who comes from Edom? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So this person speaks. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And then the prophet asks a question. He says, well, why, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Basically, he's asking, what happened to your clothes? Why, why are you all soiled? What, what, what is this? And this is how he answers. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. I mean, this is graphic, is it not? This is a graphic visual of God's judgment upon evil and upon the nations who do not bow the knee to him. He's saying, I have stomped on the people, and it's like, it's like when you're stomping upon the winepress, upon the grapes, and the juice of the grapes is on your clothes. And he is coming back victorious. He is coming back from a complete victory in his strength 
and in his power. Well, some people have said this is Jesus the Messiah, the servant, but it's not. This isn't the servant. This is Jesus, the conquering lion. This isn't Jesus in his first appearance as a man. This is Jesus coming back in his second appearance in judgment. And we read about a very similar uh, and very similar language from Revelation 19. So hear this from Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he's a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is the conqueror coming. right? And his victory is complete. He is, he is no longer having grace and mercy. He's bringing justice and judgment. So this is heavy. right? This is intense. But what do we make of this? A couple things. First thing I want you to notice is in verse 3, where he says, No one was with me. I've trodden this winepress alone. And in verse 5, there was no one to help. I was appalled. There was no one to appall. There's certain things that God does alone in the Bible. There's certain things that he does alone. No, no one joins him. The first one is, is easy to think about creation, right? In the beginning, God. He created all things. No one could assist him with this. No one could help him. The second is salvation itself. No one could save God's people except himself. No one could join him. Think of Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We just read in, uh, in Breakfast Boys on Saturday where, the, uh, where it talks about the, uh, the disciples falling asleep in the garden when he's asking them to stay awake with him. They couldn't. They couldn't stay awake. They couldn't be with him. And we know eventually everyone scatters while he's being persecuted and taken to trial. No one was going to walk that path except him to save his people. He was alone in doing salvation. And then in judgment, that God brings judgment alone. I've trodden the winepress alone. Verse 3. Second thing we need to realize is verse 6 when we see this. He says, I trampled down the peoples in my anger and I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. What does that mean, I poured out their lifeblood on the earth? Basically what that's saying is they're not coming back from this, right? When blood comes out of a person and goes on the ground, it's not coming back. This is a complete destruction of all God's enemies. He will completely destroy his enemies. What do we make of this? The first thing I want us to think about and remember is that God is angry at sin. He's angry at all things that reject him. And he will punish those who reject him. Both the sin and the sinner. 
And so the immediate question we must ask ourselves is, where do you stand with Jesus today? Are you on his side or are you against him? We know the fate of what happens to those who are against him. And even if you're a Christian, even if you profess Jesus, think about this. Am I truly believing in him? Do I really trust in him? Is all this a show? Because there will be those who are goats among the sheep in the end that we we read about. Are you on his side? Don't you want to be on his side? I do. I do. Secondly, as believers, we need to remember that God is angry and will punish those who will hurt his children. Edom was an enemy of Israel. God will punish and bring justice to those who hurt his people. And so the implication for us is we don't need to avenge ourselves. When we have been wronged, when we've been hated, when we've been hurt, we don't need to avenge ourselves. This is where we get Jesus' teaching, to turn the other cheek. Why? What's the foundation of that? Justice will be brought eventually. Jesus isn't just saying that so we can be kind. He's saying, I'm going to bring justice eventually to every, every wrong, to every evil, to every injustice. So we're to wait, aren't we? We're not to avenge ourselves, we're in, but we're to wait for his ultimate justice. And so also the application is to, as as we walk in our faith, you cannot walk in your faith without establishing yourself in his victory. As you go to the end of your life, on your deathbed, you're not to consider all of your great attributes, all of your great performances in life, all those great achievements. That's not where you should land, right? That is not going to hold you. But you need to land on the finished victory of Christ on your behalf. This is talking about the second coming. There was also a victory, and it began in his first coming on the cross, where he said, it is finished. Everything necessary for your salvation has been completed, and that conquering has begun. He's first conquered sin and death, and it will be fully brought at the end of the age. Establish your faith in his victory. You know, one of the greatest accomplishments, you know, if you think about uh, America's history and our wars, um, many of us, when we talk about the generations before us, we think back to World War II as a huge victory, accomplishment of our nation that we can be ultimately proud about. And um, I was reading uh, from a, a writer named Christina Fox, and she was saying, you know, D-Day was really the, the turning point of the war against Germany. She says, uh, it enabled the Allies to push inland toward Paris and ultimately across Europe. The Allies' victory against Hitler, this is, this is how, we re- how we think of God, the Allies' victory against Hitler reminds us that there is an end to war, to all wars. There will come a day when peace will reign and when the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And we're going to read about that in Isaiah 66. But How do we get to Isaiah 66? The conqueror comes and he makes peace. Christ our king will come. Satan will be cast into hell. Sin will will be no more. And we will reign with Jesus forever. Our nation, the the U.S., has engaged in many battles and wars and will continue to do so. 
long as we live in this sin-stained world, right? there's going to be sin, there's going to be wrongdoing and wars. And there's much we can learn from the stories of the brave soldiers who fought on our behalf. But above all, may their stories remind us of the one who fought an even greater battle against evil itself and won our victory forever against sin and against death. That wrath, that the lion who comes to conquer, becomes our salvation. And many people have said, you know, I, I'm sure I'm glad I don't live, that I don't live in the Old Testament days where there was war and there was sword and there was famine and pestilence and plagues and it just sounds horrible and, and God just really seems different back then. It seems a lot more just, just wrathful. And in the New Testament, all we see is love and kindness and, and, and happiness and Jesus tender. But that's not true. The wrath and the love gets ratcheted up in the New Testament, right? Where we see clearly God's love, where we see clearly God's wrath. I read from Revelation 19, right? All of what happened in the Old Testament is merely a, a picture of what ultimate judgment will be. And wrath against the world and against evil is always means salvation for God's people. And we see the love of God for us. And that's my second point that we're going to look at this morning, the lamb who loves us. We have a lion who conquers, but we also have a lamb who loves us. And here we're going to start looking at verse 7. And what this launches us into as well is a prayer. And a good model for prayer is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we actually see those modeled as we go through verse 7 through verse 19. But it begins with adoration. So we hear this, that this conqueror is going to come and destroy all wickedness and evil, and that will be our salvation. And Isaiah launches into this prayer in verse 7. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel. What is he doing? He's adoring God. Adoration. We need to be, in our prayers, adoring who God is. And in doing so, we recount the works of the Lord. We recount what He's done in salvation history. We we recount what He's done in our own lives. The Christian life needs to be filled with continual remembering and retelling the promises of God. That's why He tells us to come and worship every week. right? Why? So we can be remembering and retelling the great works of God, the great promises of God. Why? Because we forget. Because I forget. Wake up every morning. We have to read our, the Bible. We have to read the gospel. We have to preach it to ourselves, have God's word into our hearts. We need to, as Deuteronomy 6, get up with our kids in the morning, talk about God to them, talk about it in the evening. As we walk along the way, pass it on to the next generation. Retell his works. And why else? So that we will believe him more and more and trust in him more for the difficulties in our lives that we have to endure. This is much a retelling of just how difficult life can be as a follower of of God's people, as God's people, right? The history of Israel is full of just ups and downs and twists and turns and sin and evil. We have to be telling ourselves, what has God done? And I want to focus on two words that we see in this section from verses 7 and 8. Actually, going down to verse 9 as well. 
Two words for love. We see two words for love. The first is in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Steadfast love. Whenever we see that phrase, steadfast love, it's a particular Hebrew word named hesed. And it's really what it means is the covenant love of God. The covenant love. That he uh, does his part in the covenant. That he will never be unfaithful to his covenant love for his people. And that everything he's done in history is because of his covenant faithfulness. That he has promised to his people. Right? When, he, when he led them out of Egypt and, and opened up the Red Sea and had them walk through and led them through the wilderness and the Spirit of God descended in the cloud that led them by day and the fire by night, that was all his covenant love. The fact that he stayed faithful to them throughout their rebellion is his covenant steadfast love. It's, what, it's, what, it's why he never forsakes his people ultimately because he's made a covenant with them. And no matter how many times we break it, he will never break his covenant with us. So whenever you see steadfast love, remember that. It's a love that never goes away because of the promises he's made. The second is a few verses down in verse 9. It says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and I'll talk about that, and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity he redeemed them. That in his love, is the only time that word for love shows up in Isaiah. Ahava. The only time that word shows up. And it's actually very rare in the Old Testament. Just a few examples show up in the Old Testament. Ahava. What does that mean? In his love. It's a tender love between one person to another. Even a husband to a wife. It's the only time we see this, this use of the word in, in Isaiah. And I looked up a few instances where does it show up. In Genesis 29, it shows up. You remember Jacob serving Laban for seven years for Rachel? Do you remember what it says about how long it seemed to him? And they seemed to him those seven years, but a few days, because of the love he had for her. Remember that? That's an intense love one person has for another, an affection one person has for another. That for Jacob... Those were just a few days. Those years were just like a few days because he loved her. Another place is Zephaniah 3, where it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, Ahava. And he will exult over you with loud singing. Isn't that beautiful? He will quiet you by, your, by his love. Isn't that beautiful? That that's the kind of love God has for us. A love you have for your kids, right? A love you have for your wife or your husband. A, a love, a deep love, an affection where you see the struggles of a person and it wrenches your heart and you have pity for them. That's the kind of love God has for us. He knows our frame. And it's shown also in verse 9 where he, when he says this, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. I was reading a commentator at E.J. Young. He he says you can also translate that, in all their affliction, there was affliction to him. Anytime God's people struggle, he is struggling and hurt. John Calvin said, in order to move us more powerfully and draw us to himself, 
the Lord accommodates himself to the manner of people by attributing to himself all the affection, love, and compassion which a father can have. The language used points out forcefully that God bears our burdens and carries our sorrows. God feels the sufferings of his people as his own sufferings. Doesn't that just bring comfort to you to know that's the kind of love God has for you? And so what's the application? Ground yourself in that love. Ground yourself in his love. No one loves you like God loves you. That's what we tell our kids sometimes. We tell them how much we do love them. But we also say, you know what, kids? Our love is going to fail here and there. Our our love is imperfect. God loves you even more than we do. And it's so so cool to say that because because the the father and and mother's love for a child is is really the, 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 the greatest love they know. But to say, you know what? There's something even greater behind our love. And that love you can know. And how much, I mean, you, you can have a great marriage, you can have great kids, you can have a great sense of love in your family or friends. And they, the reason that love is so great is because they see, all, they see a lot of your imperfections, don't you? You see a lot of the imperfections of your husband and of your wife. God sees everything. Friends, God sees everything in you. He sees the, all the bad and some of, you know, much of the bad, right? And we have just a little bit of good that he sees. There is grace. He sees it all. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Isn't that amazing? So ground yourself in that love today. Be reminded of it as you live and as you walk as a believer. The final characteristic we see of this person, this God, is the Lord who leads us. And then begins in verse 10. The Lord who leads us. So we've already seen that the, the, um, he's a lion who conquers. We've seen that he's a, a lamb that loves. Judgment is certain for God's enemies, we've seen. Love is certain for God's people. But what do we do when it seems as though God is our enemy? What do we do when it seems as though God is our enemy? Which we, we read in verse 10. Where do we turn when it feels as though God is not around? And times like this, if you haven't felt it yet, will come into the life of a believer. One thing we must do when that happens is to cry out to God as Isaiah does. Why? Where are you? Where is your zeal and might? Cry, return, O God. And in the model of prayer, we have confession. Look at verse 10. Look at this confession. But they rebelled. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. God became their enemy. And in this section we see where is he repeated three different times. Where is he who did these things? Where is God? So in what sense can God become the enemy of his people? Because didn't we just talk about how God's covenant faithfulness and steadfast love is always there? So what gives? Why can he, how can he be an enemy of his people? Well, it can happen in this way, by removing his presence and allowing discipline to take place, by removing his presence from his people. And that can really, truly happen in a believer's life, to not feel the presence of the Lord because of our sin, because of our rebellion. 
And that is difficult. That, uh, that brings us into confusion. It brings us into what, what do we do? Where do we go? Where is God? But one thing that brings us back is to be thankful again for what he's done to save us. And then 12 through 14, we move into this prayer of thanksgiving where he's again reminding himself and God's people, thanking God for all he's done. Look at verses 12 through 14. This is the God who calls his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They didn't stumble. Like livestock that go down the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. It's in the midst of that, that distance between the people and God that they're reminded and asking him to, to remember his steadfast love and what he's done for them. And that moves us into the final aspect of prayer, which is supplication, beginning in verse 16. Well, 15 and 16, really. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you're our Father, who Abraham doesn't know it, and Israel does not acknowledge us. Again, you see the asking of Isaiah, the asking of the prophet, where are you? Appealing to God, for you are our Father, verse 16. Do you know there's not many examples of the term for Father, for God, in the Old Testament, but here we have it, two different times, that you are our Father. And look at the way Isaiah separates the idea of God the Father from Abraham and the fathers of old in Israel. Abraham does not know us. Israel does not acknowledge us. In different senses, it's because they've, they are so distant from what they were like, Abraham and Isaac, that they become unrecognizable. But also, I think it points to the, there are limits to how great a father, an earthly father can be. Right? Where earthly fathers fail, God loves them still. Where he can call them father, and they can, they can call him father. And then we get to this difficult verse in verse 17. And perhaps you saw it and, and were wondering, what does that mean? Verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? What is he saying there? What is the prophet saying? E.J. Young says this, The thought is that God causes the people to wander from his paths and to harden their hearts so that they will not fear him. But the prayer does not, however, absolve man of responsibility for the people's lack of blessing is due to their own sinfulness. The prayer is a confession or acknowledgement that God has forsaken, but that the fault lies with the people themselves so that God's vengeance and actions against them are righteous. So they're not, they're not putting all the blame on God. Look, look, God, look what you've done to us. You've hardened our hearts and, and we have no responsibility for, for this, Okay. That's not, what, that's not what Isaiah is saying. If you even go back to Isaiah 59, we see, verse 2, But your iniquities, God says, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So obviously, personal responsibility is at play. They've decided to walk away. But what it's doing, what, what, what the prophet is, is saying is that there is a deeper truth, that God is at work even when it doesn't seem like it. Paul Tripp says this, The goal of your life 
is not to see how much you can control and how many people you can control. But instead, when things are out of your control, they are not out of control. When things are out of your control, they are not out of control. We live in a universe that is under control. We live in a universe that is under control. But the Bible never presents this truth as such a way that turns humans into robots. Does that make sense? We, we have freedom of choice. We can do what we want. Human choices are one of God's means of doing what he's planned to do. Let me repeat that because that's huge. Human choices are one of God's means of doing what he's already planned to do. There is a deeper truth to our suffering and to our own sin, even. And the only thing we can do is verse 17 and say, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. The only prayer we have left is to ask God to have mercy and soften our hearts. We are wholly dependent upon God. That's one of the main truths of all of Isaiah. We are wholly dependent upon God. And so the application here is to be led by God's sovereign hand, that he is sovereignly in control of everything in your life. So ask yourself, can you trace his sovereign hand in your life? Can you trace it? Can you see it? Can you see it in your most painful experiences? Can you see his sovereign hand in your most disappointing failures? What about your deepest regrets? How about your habitual sins? Do you see his sovereign hand at work? Friends, without a sense of God's ultimate sovereignty, anxiety will really rule your heart. Anxiety about what does it all mean? Where do I go from here? Who do I depend on? Who do I, who do I turn to? How do I get out of this rut of sin? David Pallison says this, there are countless ways to simply lessen anxiety. You could get into vigorous exercise, getting all the facts, Prozac, cognitive behavioral therapy, finding the best possible doctor, yoga, a vacation to Bermuda, a glass of wine, getting some distance from the problem, finding support from fellow sufferers, throwing yourself into work. Some of these are fine in their place, but none of them will make you fearless in the face of trouble. None of them creates that fruit of the Spirit called endurance, which is mentioned repeatedly when the New Testament talks about God's purpose in suffering. None of the strategies for personal peace gives you the disposition and power to love another person considerately in the small choices of daily life. None of them gives you high joy in knowing that your entire life is a holy experiment as God's hands shapes you into the image of His Son. None of them changes the way you suffer by embedding it in a deeper meaning. None gives you a, a reason to persevere in fruitfulness through all your days, even if the scope of your obedience is constricted to your interactions with nurses at your bedside, no matter where you find yourself in life, through all the ups and downs, 
God is sovereign. And he will lead you with his sovereign hand. Just know that. We need to deeply trust in God's sovereign hand. And that's what Israel was called to do. They needed, they needed to know God as Lord. They needed to know him as lamb and his love. And they needed to know him as the lion. And what's so awesome is we see those ideas brought together. If you'll flip all the way to Revelation again, chapter 5. Revelation 5 as I close. Verses 1 through 10. We see the lamb, we see the lion, and we see the Lord. Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out all into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There we see it, the lion and the lamb. And how did the lamb conquer? By shedding his own blood. By shedding his own blood. Jesus conquered as the lion by being slaughtered by a lamb so that we could be with him as our Lord forever and ever. And he will come back fulfilling that day and conquering for us, for his people. So let's remember that. Remember who he is and we'll remember who we are. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we, we're grateful and thankful for this great truth. We are not deserving of your love, we're not deserving of your grace, but you pour it out upon us day by day as the gospel is preached, as you remind us of what you've done for us to love us. Father, we, uh, we need you, for this life is difficult. The paths you choose for us are difficult, but they're all designed by your hand with purpose and love and intention to draw us close to you, to rely on you more and more. So will we be reminded of that? When we are tempted to run away from you and into idols and to escape, would you open our eyes to that folly? Bring us back to your side. Chastise us, discipline us in your love because you care for us. And remind us of the victory that Jesus has won for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.